This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with wildlife cinematographer Nick Hayward and behavioural ecologist Dr Anastasia Dalziel. Known as the cinematographer who filmed the famous clip of a lyrebird mimicking a chainsaw in David Attenborough's The Life of Birds, Nick Hayward deploys his cinematography skills once again in a new documentary directed by Mark Pierce called The Message of the Lyrebird. Anastasia Dalziel, alongside other cast members, contributes her expertise to explore the brilliant mimicry of the lyrebird in Australia, a bird known to mimic the songs of other birds in the forest, as well as other animals and, maybe, sounds from a human source. I'm so delighted to be joined by two wonderful guests, wildlife cinematographer Nick Hayward and behavioural ecologist Dr Anastasia Dalziel. They're both cast members and collaborators in a new documentary directed by Mark Pierce, which is called The Message of the Lyrebird. I mean, before lockdown happened in regional Victoria, there is and was a screening planned for September the 12th, which is a fundraiser for the Goongarra Environment Centre in East Gippsland, which is so wonderful. We speak to them quite a lot and have covered issues of the forests in East Gippsland, among others. Of course, naturally, we've spoken about the Central Highlands a lot as well. So we will update you as to when the screening does occur. That doesn't matter for our conversation because we We are going to be talking about the content of the film, obviously the way that it's filmed with Nick's cinematography and Anastasia's great expertise in a scientific sense on the lyrebird. So uh, both are very much equipped to discuss these fascinating birds that are highly intelligent from what you can tell in terms of their memory and ability to mimic different sounds, including other birds and other animals, for example. But we are going to jump in and talk about this topic. So I'm very, very pleased to welcome you, Nick. Hi there, Nick Hayward. Hi there. Thank you very much, Amy. Thank you for having me. pleasure. Thanks for coming on. And also, hello there, Anastasia Dalziel. Hi, Amy. It's great to be here. Thanks. I've really, really loved watching this film and I don't say that lightly. It probably would have affected me even if we weren't in lockdown, but uh, I got a little teary watching this documentary because it was so moving to see how these birds interact, not just in the forest, but also between each other, by themselves, when they don't realise that Nick's camera is on them. It's just such a, a wonderful thing and it brings a smile to your face coming from my perspective as the viewer of the documentary. So it was just a real joy to be able to watch this and to connect with a bird that is very hard to see yourself if you're going on a, a, a walk. You can hear them everywhere, as I did when I was in the Tulangi Forest a number of years ago. So I wanted to start from that point in terms of personal appreciation of the lyrebird and really speak to both of you about how you came to personally be interested in the lyrebird and appreciate its beauty and its brilliance. So I'll start with you, Nick, as you open the film and really talk about your own connections in with the lyrebird. There's something about lyrebirds that it's their presence, I think, that when you're in the forest, it's got such a powerful presence uh, it's not just the mimicry it's the way they move the the way they they sort of inhabit the forest and there's something about them which people do become obsessed by them and I've certainly been obsessed you know I went down and did this film and, and spent weeks and weeks in the forest really just to be with the lyrebirds and I'm not the only one there was uh, a guy in the 30s Dragalis who who lived in a hollow log in the Sherbrooke forest uh, left his house, come very comfortable house in Fitzroy and his wife, caught the train up to Belgrave every weekend and went and lived in the forest to be amongst the lyrebirds. Uh, and then we have a whole retinue of current people, of which Anna's one, but we have Alex Maisie, Vicky Austin and Matt Chamond, people who dedicate their time to the lyrebirds. And I, I don't know, it's hard to describe what it is. It, it's, there's something about their presence, their sound, the way they look, the, the way they look at you that just is so it draws you in yeah it's so magical to 
personally, you know, when you're standing in the forest, hear all these different sounds and you can, as you say, sense their presence. And there's also the wonderful group, the Sherbrooke Lyrebird Study Group, who's featured throughout the film. So many enthusiasts there and they're so engaging. Their eyes light up, their faces light up. They're so excited at the prospect of finding lyrebirds and and marking where they are in the territory, citizen scientists who just really love at a deep level lyrebirds. So really watching them get excited about lyrebirds is quite infectious. So um, it's a really joyful thing to see. You know, it's it's so widespread in the community as well. I was in the Sherbrooke Forest last year working on another David Attenborough show, which Anna was also involved in. And the number of people that were in that forest, lockdown had just ended, uh, the first lockdown in Melbourne had just ended, and the forest was just full of people who'd come to see the lyrebirds. And if you, you know, if, if you're on a street uh, and I think and you stop to ask passers-by, everyone seems to have a lyrebird story or, or very mm. interested in lyrebirds. There's something about them which is just really enthralling. Absolutely. Anastasia, what about you? Do you have a similar experience? I think Nick puts it extremely well, very poetically. I'm not sure I can add much to that. But to just speak to my my own story, I've been interested in sound for a long time, um, starting off as a musician and and then making a few forays into the science of birdsong. And someone suggested I work on lyrebirds and that was so exciting that was it's like being offered the holy grail the opportunity to go out and and spend so much time listening to them and and really diving deep into what what they're singing and why they might be singing it how they sing it and up until that point I'd had fleeting glimpses of lyrebirds they certainly captured in my imagination but I hadn't had so much experience with them I grew up in in sort of the 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 grassy woodlands of Canberra and lyrebirds were a very special treat that we planned for in, in school holidays and things. So then to have an opportunity to study them, to spend three winters with the lyrebirds um, was amazing. It was such a great privilege. And I think Nick puts it really well. It's not just their song, which is extremely exciting. And every time I hear it, I just feel I feel joy. I feel this great sense of joy and um, happiness and and calm. But it's not just their song. They really have this big presence. They do such odd and funny things and their lives are are so intricate and serious and, and you can even hear them sort of walking through the forest. If a live bird is there, the forest is, is a different place, I think. Mm. So, yes, I, I, I agree very much with what both of you have said. They are extremely special animals. And from the perspective of someone who's studying the lyrebirds in depth and and really observing them very, very carefully and clearly sound recordings would be part of that work, but what does a scientist who is studying and observing different species of lyrebird do in Australia? What kind of things does it make you think about and how do you actually engage with them on the ground, because as we see in the film, there is this kind of necessity to keep a distance. Yes. So the first thing we set out to do was to really understand what they were singing when they sang different things and and then get at the question of, of why. And that very first question turned out to be a lot more complicated than we had ever suspected. But to do that, we're, we're going into their world, into their forest. So we gear up with uh, our winter clothes because they sing in the middle of winter when it's really cold and wet. There's lots of leeches and things around. We try and find clothes that aren't too noisy. And then we, we get very muddy and we carry, carry lots of equipment so we rec- record them. But we can only record them if they let us. So I think it's a testament to the public who visit Sherbrooke Forest so much that those lyrebirds, um, most of them are reasonably happy to have us around as long as we don't get too close, that they've become used to humans. They know that we're, we're no threat to them. And they also know that we make terrible lyrebirds because what we're, we're doing is we're entering their forest, we're following them around, we're climbing over logs, we're going around the corners, and they can just happily skip through the forest. They can fly up the hill if they hear somebody exciting singing up the hill. 
And uh, it's really hard work. I really, there's so many times, I'm sure Nick feels the same, I just wished I was a library. I could just you know, float up the hill to follow that, that singing voice to see what was happening in that big ruckus up the hill. Yeah, it must be really challenging and physical work. And Nick, similarly with you and, and cinematography and trying to capture the lyrebird and its natural behaviour in the wild, no doubt that would be quite a challenge and have its own considerations from your perspective. I think the challenges are very similar to what Anna was talking about because the, the, the lyrebirds uh, tend to live in the forest, which is quite thick and often very hilly. So you've got to move around the forest with what is a heavy camera and tripod and all your bits of gear in an environment where it's probably raining and it's everything's slippery and, and muddy. And the lyrebird, as Anna said, it can go down to one spot and maybe it's dancing on a stick or on a mound or calling and you, you plod your way over trees and crawling over things of your gear and slipping on some mud and you get there. And then it decides to run 200 metres up the hill. So you've got, you've got to follow it then up the hill. Uh, it can move up and through its environment in a flash and you stumble around the environment very, very slowly getting exhausted with thick vegetation you've got to navigate through, huge logs to climb over, mud, and then it's wet. Fortunately, um, the, the cold dissipated because you tend to be sweating carrying all the gear. <laughs> <laughs> and that's part of the problem too. When you stop to get to a lyrebird and it's and it's singing, sometimes on the recordings you can hear my breath goes <sighs> as, as I'm catching my breath and try not to breathe too heavily so the mic's not picking it up. But it is such also a beautiful environment in the forest because you know it'll, the the wetness of it, it it shimmers with with the water on it, uh, and then when the sun comes out that sometimes the water and the vegetation just starts evaporating and there's like this, it's like a fire of burning mist coming off the vegetation. So even though it's cold and miserable, the moisture of the forest uh, and the winter sun, it, it still gives it a, a, a certain ethereal glow that's really beautiful. And it does come through in those shots that you do film. There is even a point, I remember a shot where the lyrebird was singing and you could see its breath in the air because it was such a kind of frosty morning. Yeah, that's very common because it's always cold because it's winter when they do uh, the breeding season when the males are displaying calling and it's always in a cold, dark, uh, cold, dark forest, yeah. not, in a warm, not in a warm, sunny spot. Uh, so, yeah, it's very common to see the lyrebird's breath coming out like that. Probably lucky, Anastasia, that you grew up in Canberra and are used to the freezing cold. <laughs> it may have helped, but uh, yeah. it's, uh, it's a lot wetter in these forests. Yeah. Um, but one thing I would add to Nick's wonderful description is that the sound of the forest is incredible, the acoustics as well. So you have these really big old eucalypts with uh, very, very hard surfaces and the lyrebird's voice just bounces off the trunks of the trees and they just echo. You just have this whole forest full of singing birds. So despite the, the physical hardships and not being a lyrebird, moving through these forests, the, the reward when you get to hear those sounds and, and see their dances is incredible and it's, it's totally worth it. Oh, Very absolutely. So. Yeah. Nick, I wanted to touch on what you discuss at the beginning of the film because it sets up the film really and it's something that I think a lot of people would have remembered a certain video from a documentary by David Attenborough which you were involved in, The Life of Birds, and they'll recall seeing a lyrebird do some particularly surprising sounds that were related to human sounds. So I wonder, could you share with us what did, as you say, spark your ideas and thoughts and spur you and the rest of your cast members and production members on to actually do this film? Well, back in the, the 1990s, I got a request from the Life of Birds team, uh, they they wanted to film live birds mimicking chainsaws and various other sounds. Now, at that point, I, I wasn't very knowledgeable about live birds and much more knowledgeable now. And uh, so I was just employed as a cameraman. And they said that um, they said that this was a common behaviour that occurred with live birds in the wild, uh, but they, they couldn't find a location in the wild for me to film it at. 
So they sent me to Hillsville Sanctuary. Uh, so that that clip, which some people might know about, it um, was voted by the British public as their favourite at the moment for his 80th birthday, and it's had about 20 million hits on YouTube. So it's very, very popular, and a lot of people have seen it. But what I learnt after doing that is actually no one's ever ever recorded a wild lyre bird mimicking a chainsaw. And to this date, I've never heard a recording. No one's ever showed me a recording. Uh, plenty of people have said they've heard it. So what really concerned me was that the BBC had got me to film something which was inaccurate or untruthful. And so I, the sort of my initial motivation for working on this film was to see if lyrebirds did actually mimic sounds of chainsaws or maybe other human sounds. Well, I mean, it is something that I've seen and had seen already. And um, and at the beginning, I wasn't aware that it was a, a bred in captivity lyrebird called Nova. And it's really great that there is Heelsville in the sense that there are lyrebirds that people can see up close, but obviously their conditions and environment is very, very different to a wild lyrebird. So Anastasia, could you explain to us those really essential differences between the lyrebirds that are grow up in captivity and who they learn from and then how it's very different in the wild because of obviously the way that lyrebirds learn their songs? That's a good question. So if you go to Hillsville and you hear their lyrebird, he is fantastic, the lyrebird. So he's a wonderful mimic. But he's mimicking the sounds of the zoo. So you can hear him mimic some extraordinary sounds of like arid bird calls. And like I think there's a, a bushstone curlew call that he imitates, which is, is pretty amazing. But in the wild, male lyrebirds uh, learn to mimic things that are around them. So it's these are uh, birds and occasionally some mammals that live in the forest, in the wet forest of his habitat in southeast Australia. But there seems to very be a very strong component of social learning. So that means that they seem to listen to each other and they mimic the sounds that all the other males mimic too. And you can reel off uh, a list of favourite sounds of the best hits of superb lyrebirds and it tends to be rather similar throughout their range. That's from Victoria right up to the Queensland, New South Wales border. So they really like to imitate yellowtail black cockatoos. They're particularly fond of imitating kookaburras. They like to imitate crimson rosellas, um, king parrots, and particularly eastern whipbirds. They really like those ones. So you can be, you can predict what they're going to Im imitate, but it's mainly birds. It's mainly other species of birds with which they share their environment. It's something that I certainly noticed but had no clue of when I was in the forest myself is that I actually recorded the sound because I thought it was so stunning and beautiful on my iPhone and then took it to a person I was interviewing about birds and said, what do you think about this recording? And they initially said, oh, it's a whip bird. And then they actually clarified, said, no, 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 that's a lyre bird imitating a whip bird, which really sparked my imagination that you could possibly have such a, you know, impressive mimic that you honestly could barely tell. So how do you then tell when you're in the forest? What are the kind of giveaways that the mimic is not actually the bird itself? <laughs> There's a couple of giveaways, but the big giveaway that you're listening to a lyrebird and um, not to the birds they're imitating is that the lyrebird will string together imitations of lots of different species in a row. And they do so quite quickly. So you start to hear a kookaburra, then you hear a golden whistler, then you hear a grey shrike thrush and an eastern whipbird and a crimson rosella in quick succession, just in under 20 seconds. And then the next giveaway is it's usually coming from the ground because lyrebirds spend most of their time on the ground, whereas most of the birds that they're imitating are found in the middle story of the forest or really or right at the top in the canopy. So that's a, another giveaway. And then I think most people will say that the third one is difficult to pin down. In fact, it hasn't been pinned down. But there's a certain lyrebird-esque voice. Once you get your ear in, you just hear it and it, it sounds like a lyrebird. And we don't quite know what that is. We've got a, a few clues to how their imitations are, are different from the birds they they're copying, uh, but there is some, uh, the musicians would call it a timbre, I guess, some 
essential lyrebirdness to their voice, which you can hear as well. Which I'm gathering the more you hear, you'll get attuned to that timbre that you hear, the, the quality of the voice. Yes, I think that's probably true. Now, I've got some sound clips which Mark, the director, has kindly shared with me. So I'm going to try this out, see if it works live on radio, and play one of the clips that has a kind of mixture of these sounds, these different calls in succession, as you say, from the lyrebird that's taken from the film. So we're going to come back to you all once I've just played this short clip to illustrate some of what we're just talking about now. So there we've just heard a little bit of some of that ambient sound from a lyrebird and uh, it's clearly really varied and there's some wonderful calls in there. It does, as we can tell, and as Anastasia's just said, move through different calls very, very quickly. So we probably heard in that clip about, I don't know, 10 or 12 different bird calls. Anastasia, Towards the end of that clip, we heard some like click clicking and some interesting mechanical sounds. What are these sounds, particularly because they sound so curious to us and in that way they don't remind me of a certain type of bird? Is that something that's quite unique to the lyrebird, the, those end sounds that we were hearing that sounded a little bit mechanical and clicky? Yeah, so it's true that lyrebird, as well as being an amazing mimic, also has its own repertoire of extraordinary lyrebird-specific sounds that are unique to themselves. So they have this wonderful song and dance display that they perform for females um, right before mating. That's a really crucial uh, performance for them. And it's like nothing on earth, really, those sounds. The, um, they start off with this extraordinary, almost like a laser game, a 1980s laser arcade game sound. Uh, and that's the beginning of their dance. And they have particular dance movements that go with that one. So they walk to the side when they're doing that song. And then they have this extremely loud, repetitive sound, sort of a zonk, zonk, followed by a very quiet plinkety, 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 and they jump when they do those plinketies at the same time. And then they cycle through this a number of times for the female uh, just before mating. And so it's an extraordinary sound, and then they have these rather elaborate dance movements that go with it. Um, and that's uh, rather unique in the bird world to do that uh coordinate their song with their dance like that. Yeah, I loved that part of the film where you were really talking about the fact that there is almost a competition as well about who's doing the dance well and accurately and that not all males will do the dance in the same way and some of them might, you know, make a few mistakes and it seems like that's part of the way to win the female in terms of copulation and mating. Oh, I think it's essential. Mm. Uh, so by the time a male reaches adulthood, when he's about seven or eight years old, and he's got his own territory if he's lucky, and he's even managed to persuade a female to come and at least check him out, then his, his dance has got to be very good if he's going to get any further. 
But the young males are terrible. You see them almost tripping over themselves. They're matching them <laughs> the wrong song with the long, wrong dance. But they have they have about seven years to practice, and they do spend a lot of time practicing. And it's interesting that age gap as well in terms of the females and when they're ready for mating versus when the males are and they've grown those magnificent feathers, which we haven't even got to yet as well. So what are the feathers doing in the males at the same time in this dance? So when there's a female, the the male, he um, will flip his tail over his head. Yeah, so when they're walking around the forest in this complicated forest full of vines and spiky things and lots of undergrowth, they, they keep their tails folded behind them and they can be quite camouflaged, the males. But once they're in full display, they flip the tail over their head so that the, the bright colours underneath the tail are, are displayed and it looks rather like a veil in the males. So you've got all these lacy filamentary feathers, we call them, and then the stripy lyrates to the side and then two thin wires up the top. And it looks like they're wearing a veil. And so they show that off to the female when they're doing their performance. And then certain times they will shake them and they have this beautiful sort of shimmery waterfall-like movement in the dance. And then just before mating, actually, they put the tail over the top of the female as well. They stand behind her. So she's in amongst the tail feathers too during the latter part of the dance. And during this whole time, there is a kind of mound, like a platform that the male is dancing on and that has cleared, I guess, a path in the forest and created this mound of leaf litter and and soil to, I guess, draw the attention of the female as well, not just the sound, but also creating that space for the female to come into its circle or orbit. Yeah, so the males spend quite a lot of their time during the breeding season creating these display mounds, which are a little like, uh, they're a dancing platform, basically. They're not very big. Uh, They're circular, so they're only about one to two metres in diameter. They're quite small. And they're usually almost always uh, placed amongst very tall undergrowth. So it's a cleared spot on the forest floor, but immediately surround it is this sort of wall of vegetation. So if the female actually wants to see the male dancing, she has to get onto these mounds and there's hardly any room for these two birds. So they're right there together. It's very intimate. It's a little bit like being, I don't, I don't know, in a very small theatre round, I suppose. Mm. You're, it's right there and she has to be there if she wants to see him. So it's it's very intimate space and it's... it's um, it's extraordinary, but it's also the, the dark ground, the dark floor of these display platforms really shows off the whiteness and the brightness of the male's tail. And we, we're starting to wonder whether it's actually a very um, full-on experience for the female because she has these big dark eyes. She spends most of her time staring at the dark ground to try and get worms for to to eat that's what they eat so that's probably extremely sensitive to light and then suddenly she's in this open platform often with the light coming down and she's got this bright white of the male's tail against the dark floor of the um of the display platform so i think it's a very the visual experience is pretty full-on for her as well as the song and the dance it's a dramatic thing to see and thankfully we do get to see it in this film. So Nick, I'll bring you in in just a second, but before I bring Nick in, I did want to ask about the female and uh, it is brought up in the film that they are quite discerning when they're taking part in that before copulation and deciding whether they do actually choose that particular male. So it seems that there is this power dynamic or imbalance, I guess, in the sense that the females don't necessarily need to go with the first male they see. In fact, that they are quite discerning in in who they choose. Yes, we know that before a female mates, she will visit. She can visit several different males. She goes up to one, he does his dance, and then she leaves. And then she'll go on to his neighbour and he can hear that. He knows that he's been rejected and she's moved (laughs) on to his neighbour. Um, And we think that actually very few individual males get any matings at all. And there'll just be one or two who get all of them who are the the best in the area. So, yes, a female seems to hold the power there. It's nice to hear. And, Nick, being a cinematographer, especially a wildlife cinematographer, and this film, there are quite a few scenes where we get to see the dancers uh, playing out 
and also a female coming along. Sometimes we see um, the male by themselves and sometimes we see the female coming into that circle. So how do you and how did you as a cinematographer manage to capture some of those very intimate, very dramatic scenes without announcing your presence and uh, in, and interfering or, and missing out on, on that really special thing that clearly not many people would get a chance to see if we didn't see this film or we weren't in the field like Anastasia is? The key is really the lyrebird has to allow you to do it. So you, you need to find lyrebirds that... Lyrebirds that don't see you as a threat. So uh, I wouldn't say that they befriend you, but you're in the forest as if you're a wallaby or, a, or a, <laughs> an inert object. You know, they, they they don't give you any regard. You're just mm-hmm. in the forest. They don't mind you following them around. You're, you're sort of irrelevant to them. Uh, and you need to find a lyrebird that, that allows you to do that. that that's the key. Uh, and there's a couple of star lyrebirds in the film. Uh, there was Mr. G. Uh, they tend to have names, the lyrebirds who you get to know well, and Mr. Bennett. Mr. Bennett was one that I named, but Mr. G is a very famous lyrebird that's passed away, uh, and he lived in the Sherbrooke Forest. And Mr. Bennett lived, um, he lived um, up near Alinda in the Dandenong Ranges. And both those lyrebirds sadly passed away. They lived for about, they can live up to 30 years. I think that's correct. So it's, they're quite long lived, but those two must have been quite elderly. And the thing about the birds is even though they don't mind you being there, you still have to move through the forest in a very quiet way. So if you step on a, on a, on a branch or a twig uh, and crack the twig, they'll go off the mound and go away. And you almost don't – you almost don't – when they're on the mound, you really can't really approach them. So the, the better technique – is to have a bit of understanding of how they use the environment and position yourself near the mound so that they can come to the mound where you're already there and you're not moving towards them. Because even though these birds are quite tame, they're happy to have you with them, there's still a few, if you make a, a noise like crackling a, a, a twig, they'll run off. And if you do that, you get to have a wonderful experience because the, the trick then is to get down low so you're not standing above them, you're down low on the ground in the nice wet mud, getting very muddy and wet and cold. And then hopefully the lyrebird will come to the mound that you think it's going to come to. And you can get those really intimate pictures of looking up at the lyrebird. Uh, so it's it's sort of standing on his mound above you almost. Uh, and then also you'll see that veil come if you're if you're in the right position. You'll see the veil come over his head and shimmer in front of his eyes. So you're almost looking through the veil at the lyrebird's face, and that's a unique experience. And it 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 does take a lot of time because you can spend a whole day in the forest of the lyrebirds and get nothing that's particularly useful. And even if you do get some really nice footage. It, it can take many days to collect that nice footage because you've got to have all the elements together right. You've got to be at the mound, the right mound that he's going to go to. You've got to make sure that you don't step on a twig and scare him off. Uh, and you've got to move through the forest in a very careful way that's not disturbing the birds. That's so interesting and really wonderful to visualise. And it is interesting also that there is that set periods where they're in that active phase. So in terms of actually filming this film and the cinematography involved, like how many field days and hours does it take or is it in totally incalculable to think of all the days that you spent out there in the field uh, trying to capture them? Well, I do have a diary, so I could actually count the days up. But but I I joined the the crowd of uh, people who become obsessed by lyrebirds, and there was one winter when I was filming that. So the lyrebird season starts probably mid June, uh, and you can film them up to up to August. You know, maybe early August, right, right about that time. They're more intense in the middle of the of that time, but they'll be active through that whole time. And we worked in the film for a couple of years. And in the first year of doing the film, I went to the forest every day I could. I was a single dad and I had kids. So I tended to have the weekends at home with the kids. But the kids were a little bit older, so I would leave at dawn. I was living in Melbourne and I'd drive up to Dandenong Ranges, spend the whole day there and then come back and cook the kids dinner. 
And I did that wow. for every day during that season apart from the weekends. I didn't miss a single day. I even gave up work. So, <laughs> I, with this film, uh, it's, a, it's a film of love and nobody was paying me to go into the forest to do it. And uh, I actually turned away all my paid jobs so I could go into the forest. I became completely obsessed. And that shows in the footage because it, it takes a lot of time uh, to get the really nice footage. You don't get it quickly. And you also, to do it in a way where you don't upset the birds or disturb the birds, which, I mean, if you did it, disturb them, if the, you, you can only do what the birds allow you to do. And that takes a lot of patience and quietness. You could be very quiet in the forest and move carefully. So there was a lot of time and effort put into, into producing the images that go along with the, with the film. Well, you're right. It absolutely does show, and that's why I loved watching it and then replaying bits just so I could enjoy it again. And I think it is really lovely to watch the dancers and that kind of pre-mating behaviour and courting behaviour. So I'm going to just play a 30-second clip, which is from the film, that has those dancing sounds that Anastasia described earlier. So we're just going to hear that and we'll be back. We just heard there a short example of that wonderful dance that hopefully you can get to see when we see this film. And I think Anastasia's done a phenomenal job in explaining exactly what it looks like in terms of those dance movements. But Anastasia, in the film and Nick, of course, there are so many different types of song and they have different purposes, it seems, and they also occur at different times. So you do talk about sub song and also you know the display songs so I wonder could you just take us through some of the differences that we might hear at different times in terms of the songs that lyrebirds would decide to mimic and engage with Sure. So if you go into the forest when the lyrebirds are singing in the middle of winter and you want to listen to the males you're most likely to hear what we call the recital song. So this is what we think of when we think of lyrebirds singing. This is when they mimic all those different birds in quick succession. It's very loud. When the lyrebird is singing these, uh, producing the recital song, he's usually perched. Um, it can be in a tree, which is quite a, a funny sight. We don't really think of lyrebirds sort of sitting in the tree like a, like a robin or something that's perched and, and singing, but that's what they do. But sometimes a perch is just this tiny little fallen over stick that's on the ground and they still sort of wander over to the stick, sit on their perch and then produce this recital song. Um, but it's also the, the main part of their dawn chorus. So if you get up before dawn and you hear them at the tops of the trees where they've spent the night roosting, they start off with this recital song. So most of it is mimicry, but then every now and then they produce their own um, we call it the whistle song, which is this lyrical, long, often ringing and echoey song that they sing in amongst the mimicry. And it's interesting that they do mimic those animals that they see around the forest as well at different times. So I know it was mentioned that there were yellow-bellied gliders, for example, and wild cats. So it's you know interesting the types of sounds they seem to pick up in the forest, not just other birds. Not other birds, but they tend to have these rules about what you mimic and when. Mm. So they have this sort of set about, about 20 to 25 different species of bird that they sing during the recital song. But then occasionally, occasionally when they're wandering around the ground, they're foraging a bit. Um, they might have seen a female and start to sort of sing to her a little bit just on the ground um, in an unstructured way. And that's when they can produce what we refer to as sub-songs. It's very quiet, sort of whispery. And it's bizarre what they put into the subsong. It can be, that's when I've heard them imitate yellow belly gliders, uh, funny crackling songs. 
sort of the non-preferred model species, like they'll mimic soft-crested cockatoos in very occasionally, all sorts of funny things. It's all very quiet and they're sort of following the female around while she's very busy and she doesn't want to pay him much attention. And it's very quiet and the rules for that seem to be quite fluid and yeah, lots of funny things are imitated then. And then, of course, we've already talked about the dance song, which is highly structured. We have the first lyrebird song, the lasers, and we have the loud zonks and the quiet plinkities, and that's that's highly structured. And at the end of that, there's um, another lot of mimicry, but that's a completely different set of mimicry once again. That's mimicry of alarm calls. So other birds' alarm calls, when the calls they give uh, when they see a snake, um, and occasionally some sound imitations of some possums too in that set. So you've got all these different sets of mimicry that have different uh, meanings or different different functions at different stages of their their performance. I'm glad you mentioned that because it was interesting to hear about that deceptiveness that you mention in the film, the deception of the males to make those sounds, the mixed species mobbing flock to imitate danger as well. Yes. Yeah. So we, we looked at those sounds at the end of their dance and yeah, we realized it wasn't just the lyrebirds imitating some alarm calls. They actually put them together. They curate the sounds um, as though it's a flock of mobbing species. So a whole lot of birds come in and they mob a snake that they see and yeah, they produce this very distinctive chorus, mobbing flock chorus, and that's what the lyrebird is mimicking at that stage. And we think it's to deceive the female because all this is happening on the mound. And remember, the description of the mound is that it's quite intimate. You've got the cleared floor where she's standing, where the male is performing for her, but then around it she's faced with this wall of vegetation and you can't see very far in that at all, especially when you're the height of a lyrebird. So the male is creating this illusion of danger that's just outside her vision. She doesn't know where that snake might be in the, the long undergrowth. And we think that's a way of saying, stay here with me where it's safe, you can see the ground and there's another bird here, don't go out in the in the long um, undergrowth where this snake or other quoll or predator is hanging around. Stay here with me and um, I have more of a chance to to persuade you to f- that I'm the one to father your young. <laughs> it's really, really fascinating to watch and hear about. Nick, you, as we've discussed, posed that question about the types of song and whether lyrebirds pick up non-natural songs in the sense of they're not a glider, they're not a fox, they're not another bird. Are they chainsaws? Are they human-made noises from logging trucks? Are they a flute call, for example? And we do see many experts throughout the film say, well, either I haven't heard a lyrebird in the wild make those types of sounds that would only come from a human source. And some who've said, well, absolutely, I have heard a certain lyrebird in this spot make that particular sound, and I'm pretty sure of it. And so I was really interested to hear of Carol Probitz, who's a birding guide and a lyrebird sound recordist, tell a story about the flute and a lyrebird that was held many, many, many years ago in Armadale, New South Wales, as a pet, and how, you know, she heard and recorded this kind of flute call that was really, I guess, surprising to her because she also believed that there was really only wild lyrebird sounds and, and that other sounds that could have been from human influence weren't present in in the field when she's out recording. So I thought I'd just play that flute call, which is only about 10 seconds, so that people can hear a different kind of call to the ones we've been talking about. And then we can discuss the crux of this film as well that we've kind of been leading into and talking about in different ways. So we'll just hear that flute call now. There we go. So we just heard a scale, a uh, musical scale, I guess you could say, that was very layered and quite interesting, a little bit discordant. So could you tell us 
about this flute call, but also what it represents, I guess, in the film in terms of this ongoing debate and discussion amongst Liebert enthusiasts and scientists and filmmakers about what we're hearing in the forest and whether Liebert are picking up sounds around them that are from humans. I think, you know, Anastasia can talk more about the flute call, but that, that's a classic example because not on a scientific level, but on a sort of a, as an observer, people are very keen to hear the lyrebirds mimic human sounds back to them. And so, you know, you might listen to that flute call and say that it's a scales or, or the gypsy dance of a kid that played the flute, you know, back in the 30s. And science can debate that. But regardless of science, the humans will hear in that sound what they want to hear. And, and it's the same with the lyrebirds. They'll hear those dancing sounds, the mechanical types of sounds, and they'll, they'll hear a chainsaw or whatever sound they want to hear coming back to them. And it's, you know, it's very interesting that there's something about the human psyche that wants to hear a lyrebird mimicking human sounds back to us. And I think it's a form of arrogance because the lyrebirds themselves, the sounds they make from the forest, are, are beautiful. And, and they're recreating the whole forest, the whole gambit of sounds from the forest. And even to the extent, you know, I live in Tassie now and I was just down south in Tasmania and we went to a forest that had been clearfelled. And there was a male lyrebird who must have lived in that forest when it was still a big old growth forest. He was singing the sounds of the forest. He was recreating the soundscape of that forest for us. And really, as humans, it's what we're missing in our lives is the sound of, this, uh, of the forest and all the birds around us. Uh, and so I'm, I don't quite understand why there's this need to find human sounds from nature, this huge desire. But, but Anna can probably talk more about the, the science, too, of the, of the flute call. Mm, thank you, Nick. Yes, go ahead, Anastasia. Oh, I have to say this is not uh, my work, um, but there's a, a, a group of hardworking recorders and scientists who've been studying this story that the particular, like the court, the flute song in the New England region originated from a copy, one male copying the sound of a child playing the flute. And they've investigated this story in some detail. They've wavered, I think, in the course of their investigation, whether or not it's imitation of the flute or whether it's its lyrebird-owned specific song. And I think last I heard they were coming around to the belief that perhaps it was the lyrebird's own song. And like Nick said, for a long time, human listeners have been hearing a flute because it, it does sound a little bit flute-like. It's a very... Uh, each individual note is is uh, clear and light and, and it's quick. It's a very quick-noted song, if you like, but it seems to be rather similar to what we call the whistle song um, that lyrebirds sing in, the male lyrebirds sing in every part of their range uh, that we've recorded so far. It's just that it's their own song and it varies so much from place to place and it just so happens that the particular variants around the New England area have this incredible flute-like sound. So what kind of position do you come to individually and within your lab when you're studying lyrebirds, when you've looked at your own and listened to your own sound recordings and you yourself, Nick, have you come to, uh, I guess, temporary conclusion about what you think the answer is or is it still really open? What are your well, thoughts on it? Well, I've never, uh, I've never been played a recording that someone's made that convinces me personally that it's a lyrebird mimicking a sound of human origin. But the film has, uh, you'll have to wait to see the film, the audience. I'll have to go to Hills on the 12th to watch it if they can get there. But the film does have something that I filmed, which, which probably answers that question definitively. But what we can say, and, and again, Anna can talk more about this, if lyrebirds do mimic sounds of human origin, it's extremely rare. And it's not part of normal lyrebird behaviour. And it, uh, it seems more like an, a, a, an aberration to normal behaviour. Mm. Do you want to jump in there, Anna, as well? Oh, yes, I can. Uh, yeah, so we've got thousands of hours of recordings taken from multiple places around Australia of lyrebirds, and we've never recorded 
a live bird mimicking a sound of human origin. The closest we've got, the weirdest sound that we've recorded, is from a female superb lyrebird mimicking what we think is the sound of two tree trunks rubbing together in the higher winds. It's sort of a squeaky sound, extraordinary sound. A bit scary because trees fall over when it's very windy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's the that's the strangest thing that we've recorded. I'm hoping that everyone gets to see this film, uh, whether it's on the 12th or another time, and I certainly will tell people when there are other screenings. Um, but it, it is really funny to watch your reactions to what Nick was saying, the footage that he um, that he filmed, because I found myself having similar facial reactions to yours um, <laughs> and just loved that that point, the climactic moment in the film. So, um, yeah, it, it's really great that there is this ongoing examination and recording and you know observation of lyrebirds so that we can actually understand them better but as you say to not necessarily bring in human or anthropocentric views about uh, what a lyrebird is doing because clearly the message from traditional owners in the film as well as from yourselves is that these lyrebirds are doing their own thing and it's often humans that are mimicking lyrebirds. For example, the lyrebird dance from the traditional Darawal peoples of the lyrebird uh, really loved that part of the film as well and the elements of human culture, our ancient culture here from First Nations peoples. So it's really great to see that cultural and spiritual element weaved throughout the film. And uh, yeah, I want to say a big thank you to both of you for taking the time to share your passion and knowledge and experience of lyrebirds with us. I hope that we've really sparked people off on their own passion potentially of lyrebirds. And um, yeah, thanks and congratulations to you all on this wonderful film, The Message of Lyrebirds. Oh, thanks thank so you for me. having us. Yeah, thank, thank you for you. having us. It's an absolute pleasure. I've just been speaking with wildlife cinematographer Nick Hayward and behavioural ecologist Dr Anastasia Dalziel, and we've been discussing their involvement in the film directed by Mark Pierce called The Message of the Lyrebird. There is a screening date in Healesville on the 12th of September at 2.30 and 4.30, if it goes ahead, if COVID restrictions in regional Victoria are different. And then, of course, also the Gecko fundraiser in Lakes Entrance on September the 12th as well, which you can find on the Gecko website. So there will be opportunities, I'm sure, even further opportunities for those in Melbourne to get to see this film. And honestly, it is essential viewing. If you love birds or nature or anything related, you'll just absolutely Absolutely feel the joy that Nick and Anastasia have imparted to us all, so I highly recommend it. Thank you to film director Mark B. Pierce for contributing the first two sound clips you heard in this interview, and to Lyrebird sound recordist Carol Probitz for the final flute call recording that you heard. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.